listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host, co-GM, McGill. It is the 11th of October, 2022, year of the stuttering mind, 2022, is episode 125. Uh man, I I'm two, not feeling two zero two two, but but I I like uh, that we're in month one zero on day one one. Oh my God, you're right. It's stuck. It's one 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 zero two zero two two. It's struck again. Um. Yeah, actually, now that now that I look at it, if you if you if you are the type to put the month first, uh, then the date is ten eleven twenty twenty two. I mean, that's how it reads in the corner of my screen here. Uh, you know, that's something interesting because I'm always dating my D&D notes and stuff is that what is your preference of how to how to put out the date? Wow, we're really getting into it this episode. You mean like how to write it or how to say it? I don't know how to write it, I guess. Because I totally say it month first, you know, like today is October 11th, 2022. Uh, but uh, to write it, I would probably do day, month, year. 11, 10, 2022. See, I would do it the other way around because... Y- year first? Yes, because the year is the one that is least likely to change. And if I write multiple notes over the course of multiple days, it's easier for me to just add on another day number than it is for me to add on, like, if it's all at the end, you know? I think that that is both logical and efficient. My old notebooks actually use um, month, day, year, but I find that when I write out my notes, when I date them, I put a little space between the month and the year so I can fit multiple days potentially because I don't know how long it's going to take me to write those notes. I'm sure some wasteful folk would just flip to another page on a new day i guess that's what you're supposed to do on like journals and diaries and stuff (laughs) i don't know about that i'm not feeling too great mcgill i got i got allergies i don't know there's a new cat in the house he's a little vagrant his name's the president the president yeah i like it and uh, he's got the article on there he's a fluffy little boy but um do you call him the prez for short i call him mr president Mr. President, that's great. Uh, or I call him Silly Boy because he's a silly boy, always flopping around, causing troubles with his his uh, cousin, Gray Goo Goo. Uh, but so do you, you have do you have three cats in the house now? No, just two. Uh, two just cats two. and then the dog. So there, I've I've witnessed many a, a Mexican standoff over this past weekend between two cats and a dog. Um, very uh it's it's really it's the it's fatty goo goo who who, the the older cat that tends to be um the least happy with the arrangement uh slimer and the president have learned to get along and play a bit together but uh fatty uh, is quite disdainful of her strange cousin from the north i'm sure i knew this already but your dog's name is slimer well, his name is officially Simon, but I've always called him Slimer since the day we got him. 
uh, any response. Is he, he, is he a very like whining. slobbery dog? Well, he's all he'll do that thing that a cartoon dog does, where the tongue hangs out the side of his mouth. Aww. So ever that's cute. Ever since he came home and was doing that, I called him Slimer. It's a, good, it's a really good name for a dog. I, I I definitely approve of Slimer. He's always trying to slime people. If you come down here, McGill, you'll get slimed, probably. Ah. <laughs> um. Anyways, uh. Yeah. All that to say, um. With the the I am. I was like, I, I am quite allergic to cats, and I have been miraculously, like, blessed to not be very allergic to Fatty Goo Goo most of the time, um, which is funny, because she's a short hair, I think, and for my sisters, it's the other way around. It's like, they tend to be allergic to short hairs and less allergic to long hairs, but this um, new guy, he's long hair, and I'm much, much more allergic to him than I am to Fatty Goo Goo, so... It's, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm just, either that or, you know, I always get some pretty rough allergies around the time when the season changes, like when the temperature is really changing. So it's, it's yeah, kind of hard to call. Yeah, I definitely get that. It's kind of hard to call, but, but I, whatever the case, like, up, like as recently as like, I don't know, a few days ago, I wasn't that feeling that bad. And now all of a sudden I'm getting smacked, but man, the show must go on. The podcast must go on, McGill. Indeed, it must, Tom. Um, are you are you feeling the spooky season, McGill? It's October. Yeah, I'm getting there. Uh, I have a tradition where every I started this in 2019. Every October, I make a list of 50 horror movies that I haven't seen, and I try to watch as many of them as I can by Halloween. You know, and uh, I've watched five so far. Oh, I got a lot to do. Yeah, <laughs> seems like you got a lot of work. Uh, unless, I mean, man, yeah. Even if you load your channel with horror movies for every evening screening, you're still gonna be a few off. So, better get to work. Maybe. Yeah, I'm. O- I'm only gonna be like halfway there if I watch a movie uh, online every night. So. And that's assuming okay. you somehow find a way to make the martial arts movie on Wednesday a horror film. Once in a blue moon, I can do it, but unfortunately, that is going to. I still got to see the Butcher's Omen. Oh man, you you'd love it so much. I I, um, I mean, my my sister, since she's around, I'm thinking maybe I'll get her to watch it with me. I mean, we watched uh, the Alien Factor together. Came up with that theory that maybe it was supposed to be called the Alien Factory. The Alien Factory. <laughs> This yeah, you weren't as you years. weren't as hot on that movie as I was. I thought it was really funny. I mean, I there were parts of it like I love the aliens. I love Alf's dad, scary Alf's dad, who's tall. Um, I like the mishmash of different types of aliens, and I love the insane like I have to go now. My planet needs me. Speech at the end. Um, yep. Also, the fact that it's like they they do that and do the like Night of the Living Dead, like the cops shoot him at the end, but like. The thing is, the cops, like, like the woman screams uncontrollably when she sees what the guy looks like, and then the cop shoots the alien, and then my sister was like, no, I'm sorry, he was just really ugly, I just need some time to get over it. <laughs> it was just a surprise, jeez. 
I was I wasn't expecting it to be that bad. So yeah, the alien factor is a wacky movie. Um, it's just there's parts of it that are so long and boring, like the the little music video of the band playing in the bar. But you get some wacky did you ever movies see, in uh, here. Did you ever see the movie Night Beast? I don't know. I don't think so. It's by the same director, and I think you might like it more because the premise is pretty similar. It's like an alien crash lands on Earth, but uh, Night Beast, the alien, all it wants to do is just kill people. And it's not like a feral alien. It's an alien with a laser gun. So it just like it's you it's flying saucer crashes on Earth. The alien gets out with its laser rifle and just immediately starts killing everybody it sees. Oh, it's like that destroy all humans game. It's uh, actually a lot like destroy all humans. Yeah, I don't know if that interests me as this weird idea. I mean, this one also like it takes so long to like get its premise across um, that like you know, that that there is a crashed alien ship. Like, for a long time, it's just a bunch of guys in rubber suits attacking people. Um, anyway. Yeah, what, we're we're way off course. Yeah, what else is going on in uh, Halloween times? Like, what, what have you watched? I know we saw uh, Demon Witch Child uh, starring Demon Witch Child, Riff Raff yep. or Death from Bill and Ted. Yep. <laughs> um... I've watched actually let me I can even pull up my list here uh I can tell you that a, a couple of ones that I watched that were quite good one I just watched today and it's called gothic it's uh made by Ken Russell who you might know his movie the devils or you mean the, the guy Tommy. I sat next to when I watched a Serbian right. film at Fantasia Film Festival that's right you sat next to Ken Russell and did Man. not even realize who he was I was like man these people are really freaking out about this old guy is he that old? It's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> great. Is he that old? He's just famous for being well, old. Well, because they're all helping him, you know? And I'm just like, what? Is this like Montreal's oldest man has come to see a fucked up <laughs> movie from Serbia? That's pretty fantastic. Uh, anyway, Gothic is... Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's like full-on Gothic camp horror. And uh, the thing I love about it is that it, the premise... It, it, you ever Do you know much about like... Uh, the novel of Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, Do you know about like where, how the idea came to Mary Shelley? Uh, hit me with it. I don't know. She and her lover, Percy Shelley and some of their friends and like, just, you know, oh, they, they were telling spooky stories. I know this, right? That's right. They're telling spooky stories at Lord Byron's Villa, Villa. Just uh, like that role playing game. Over the course of a weekend, because uh, the, there was a big thunderstorm outside, so they were stuck indoors, and it's they were telling literally spooky just stories. like that role playing game we played, stuck in a cabin with Lord Byron. Remember? That's right. That's the one. And uh, sure enough, so Gothic, the movie, is a fictionalized version of that weekend that is just turned into a Gothic horror movie. So everybody who's there. Uh, you know, they're all like really horny, really like sexually frustrated. There's a lot of like interpersonal tension. And of course, they all start like doing drugs, you know, opiates and, and they start seeing things and there are monsters. There are a lot of like cool creatures. And I, I kept quoting. I was quoting uh, Red Letter Media, but really, Tom, I was quoting you quoting Red Letter Media. I kept going like, oh, I like that spooky. Ah, oh, don't hurt that I love spooky. A good spooky. 
Yeah, don't hurt that spooky. So there are a lot of spookies in Gothic. Love a, a lot spooky. of really fun makeup effects. And like, it's it's just a really neat kind of riff on historical horror fiction. Uh, you know, t- basing some basing it on on a truly influential night in the history of the horror genre, and then just cranking up the camp value and making it into a, a 80s horror movie. So Gothic, I, I really recommend. And then this other one I want to tell you about, I'm, I can't spoil it. I'm going to have to like play it for you at some point. It's called Anguish. And uh, do you know who Zelda Rubenstein is? I don't think so. Zelda Rubenstein is the little person from Poltergeist, you oh, know. Okay. Go into the line. Uh, she, she's got that is squeaky she the one voice. that was in Southland Tales? Oh, I think so. Yeah, who says this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper or whatever the fuck. No, she says it the other way around, not with a whimper, but with a bang. But with a bang. Yeah, that's her. Um along with so Sean. It stars Zelda Rubenstein. And uh, it's all—it's like this weird kind of, uh, like almost like Oedipus kind of a, a thing where she plays. She's the mother of the, the main character, who's a kind of like a Norman Bates esque character, and uh, she psychically controls him to go out and commit murders. Hey, this and. What? Well, that segues me. I uh, I revisited The Exorcist three recently. Ah, okay. So psychically controlling people to make them do murders. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to spoil anguish. Um, the the initial setup there sounds like a fairly straightforward horror plot, but I'll say this: after the first act, it does this weird thing that's almost like fourth wall breaking twist. And things just get weirder and weirder from there. And uh, because I went in blind, because I I went in knowing absolutely nothing about this except, you know, it it came recommended. I just absolutely loved the weird trip this movie wound up taking me on. It does some very unexpected twists. Um, So Gothic and Anguish are both on YouTube if anyone listening wants to watch them. And I definitely recommend it. So I had some things I wanted to say. So I uh, had been revisiting The Exorcist 3 and uh, The Exorcist and not The Exorcist 2. Um, but I... What you got against The Exorcist 2? Uh, it's, it's dumb. It's uh, <laughs> a f- fair point, man. So um, whereas Exorcist 3 is really, really smart, actually, I think. Um and the Exorcist one, I think, is is quite a brilliantly made film and, and story. Honestly, you know, it's funny. Uh, the the like the sort of idea you're supposed to have as a film student, I feel like when they show you Citizen Kane and like it's important, it's is explained to you. I don't like actually have like I get why Citizen Kane is important, but I don't have that much reverence for it. But for me the film that is like that, that I have that reverence for is the exorcist. I think the exorcist was so wildly ahead of its time and such an incredible, um, I think there's so much that came together to make it what it is and make it something really, really, uh, there, there's so little like it basically, I think. And 
anyways, the other thing, I guess what I was thinking about is like, you know, it's, it has this reputation as one of the scariest films. And I, I do think it is one of the scarier films ever made, but what I've talked about before on the show is my pick for scariest film. Uh, traditionally, do you remember what it is? Your pick for scariest film traditionally. Well, okay. Is this the, you and I were talking about, uh, the, the William Peter Blatty oeuvre offline. Is it the, is it the ninth configuration? Oh no, that does. I don't find that that scary. I don't find that scary either, but I, I wasn't sure. What do you find to be the scariest film? I can't remember. Talked Tom. about it on the show before, but it's martyrs. I think that martyrs, martyrs is the scariest right. film. I mean, I've, I've talked a lot about why I think it, it's funny because I think both, um, both these films, uh, Martyrs and The Exorcist, are films where it's like, I can see why people would not want to watch these films. <laughs> there is, uh, they are h- hard watches. Um, but I find, like, you know, I've already mounted a, a pretty uh, strong defense. I don't know if it was strong, but I mounted a defense of Martyrs on this very show uh, in that I think that it's quite brilliant in the way that... Um, it takes uh, something that is very horrific in society in violence against women and makes that basically the, the, the monster. The, the, you think that it, you don't think it's the monster at first, but then you find out that it is. And um, I think it's quite, you know, I'm a big fan of Martyrs, basically. I'm a, I, I wouldn't love to watch it again. It's a brutal, brutal watch, and I can understand why anyone would find it uh, unwatchable. But... Um, you know, I, as an idea, I really like it, I guess. And what's funny is that I recently, you know, those Facebook memories you have pop up. <laughs> Where is this going? I had one of those Facebook memories it pop up. Seven is remember that, remember that time you skinned someone alive? <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was one of these guys, a guy I knew from improv back in the day who like, I think I literally had two memories quite close to each other where I had one memory where it was uh, me commenting on this guy's post about like, or, or no, he posted on my wall saying that he was basically doing what you're doing this October. Uh, he wanted to watch a whole bunch of horror movies he hadn't seen before. And he's like, you've been to Fantasia year after year. You've seen all these horror movies. What do you recommend? And I gave him like my rundown of like, okay, here is, like I told, I said, Inland Empire is a film that really deeply frightened me as someone who has dealt with mental illness. Um, I threw out some various films from Fantasia that were all kind of varying levels of quality and, and scariness. But I did say in there, I think probably the scariest, like downright scary film for me is Martyrs. It is a brutal, brutal watch, but it is probably the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. And then more recently, there was this other, you know, another October uh, Facebook memory, basically of this guy then posting on my wall saying, why did you do that to me? I mean, it was so good, but why? Why did you have to make me see that? Like, it was brilliant, but why? Why would you do that to anyone? (laughs) And I'm like, wait, so you just, I mean, in fairness, you did watch that film based on the single recommendation that i had said it was the scariest thing i'd ever seen um so i it's just funny you mentioned this thing about uh october and and watching horror films you haven't seen and i'm like yeah i've i uh had a little reminder of uh, going down that road before 
expose someone to a very uh, harrowing experience. But he asked for it. Got um, some good ones on my list this year. Uh, before we move on, I, I might as well just uh, read off a few titles that I love. I, I picked. I deliberately picked some some based entirely on the title because they they just they're great titles. I did that at like, Fantasia from time to time. The monster that challenged the world. I like it. I'm intrigued. How is it going to challenge the world? Sounds like um, uh, I'm going to root for that monster. I like. That yeah, screen. really. Uh, strike dear mistress and cure his heart. There's a lot going on in that title, but I think the best one is this 1972 film. Your vice is a locked room and only I have the key. Man, you know, um, for some reason I was like, you just sent me on that whole thing about Fantasia and going to see movies just for the name, you know, like, like not knowing anything else about it. I was just thinking about, uh, I think it's called Gyu Tokyo Fish Attack. It sucked, but it was the kind it of thing sucked that... Oh, man. You know, I was actually going to watch that, not as part of my, my horror movie-a-thon, but that was actually on my list. I remember we went into it so excited for Gyo Tokyo Fish Attack or whatever, and it's like... Isn't it, is it Junji Ito? Is that a Junji Ito one? Is it? I don't know. It's a real mess is I'll look what it, it is. It's a real mess. Um, and, and I remember like, it, it was the sort of thing, it was like, you know, like, a one of the openers or something was like, oh, let's go out late night on the first night and see this goofy Tokyo fish attack movie. And then it was like, whack as fuck. Uh, we, I remember came out like, blue, why we stay up for that? Um, I mean, I don't know, maybe it different. is a Junji Ito, uh, manga adaptation. All right. Well, it's a real mess it's is what it is. It's weird, you know, every time somebody, I, I find that every time somebody tries to adapt his work into film, it's always just a big mess. Man, I, I get, uh, <laughs> I feel weird about doing this, but like whenever we like call out somebody and then I'm like, and also there's something that I'd cancel them for. <laughs> Junji Ito has written some extremely transphobic, uh, little horror comics they're basically oh, about, i didn't know that but that doesn't surprise me basically about evil trans people and how evil they are um i don't know i just like the one where everybody goes in the holes shaped like them oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's classic that's the that, that's the best one uh, everything else is pretty hit and miss yeah well uh from what and, i saw and some tokyo, big misses <laughs> from what i said about tokyo fish attack uh you know that that didn't really do much for me. Um, I also wanted to say while we're on this Halloween spooky kick, I have had the the privilege of being invited to take part in a beta test for a game that is in development. It's not a secret. Uh, they mentioned it a few times on the Crate and Crowbar, the podcast that I sometimes get real confused about which podcast has what name because we're comparing campaign and their crate and crowbar they're both cnc and then they did a tabletop role anyways point is you know since they did their tabletop role-playing game episode and who knows maybe you're listening from the time that i got into the discussions on that episode and people because we saw an uptick in listeners point is 
maybe Mar- maybe Marsh is listening. Marsh from that podcast, he since the pandemic, him and his friend been working on a Forged in the Dark that is a based in the Blades in the Dark RPG called Teeth. He's mentioned it a few times on the podcast. Right now, Teeth is unavailable as its overall RPG, but they had released various uh, preview um, standalone RPG products to sort of uh, hype up and support this project. So the first one, I believe, is free on Itch.io. I think it's called Night of the Hogmen. Um, there is also the follow-up is the, the second one they did is blood cotillion and that one you can buy on itch.io. And then there's also stranger and stranger, which is also available on itch.io. Um, I can't say too much about those products, even though those are the ones that are available to the public because I am attempting to provide a specific, um, a specific perspective as service as a beta tester here where basically i am trying to give the perspective to them of somebody who has neither played blades in the dark itself nor any of the prior material because that way i can say things like hey um this might seem obvious to someone who has played blades in the dark or this but uh it's not obvious to me and so i think you should say something about that sort of thing basically just saying like I want to. I I want my test uh, feedback to help make a game that is more accessible to people who have never touched any other book before this one, basically. So all this to say, like like there is content uh, about this game that you can get that I don't know too much about, but I know you can get it. The content that I've been digging through is the stuff that you can't get yet. But let me just tell you. It, it is so totally my jam. Um, I've described it. I mean, it, it describes itself. It, it draws, draws various inspirations from um, uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Stalker. And uh, like, like I have sort of reached for, like for me, it's like Silver Bayonet crossed with Stalker. Uh, Stalker being either the Soviet art film or the series of Soviet first-person shooters, RPGs that are kind of inspired by the film. Um, Let's see. They say, yeah. uh, uh, Blades in the Dark, monster hunting procedural, uh, gothic version of a landscape, uh, bleak and beautiful moors of England, uh, Stalker and the Hunt Showdown, Sherlock Holmes, Monster of the Week serials like Buffy, uh, League of Gentlemen, etc. Uh, the Witcher meets Jane Austen is written here. Uh, I, I've gone with uh, the Silver Bayonet meets Stalker because that's, uh, you know, Silver Bayonet is we've been big fans of here on the show. I've been a big fan of. And Stalker is a point of reference. I mean, I've talked about Stalker on the show before because I used dang old anomalies in one of my D&D games once upon a time. Anyway, all this to say... It's a good combination. I, I like I like this pitch. Yeah, man, me and like late 1700s supernatural horror, that is so totally my jam. And so, yeah, it's basically like imagine if the zone from Stalker, it was in rural England in the, sev- in the late 1700s and uh, it was... Instead of being caused by 
Aliens, Chernobyl, whichever take you want to go by, Roadside Picnic, Annihilation, what have you. That's another thing. If you don't know Stalker, maybe you know Annihilation, the all-girl remake. Um, But that's a dumb joke. But um, yeah, imagine that the zone is in rural England in the 1700s and it was caused by occult experimentation. And uh, you and your you and your uh, fellow players are gonna go into that uh, awful uh, warped veil, the veil of Duluth, and you are going to. Uh, well, your your cover is that you're acting under uh, royal assent from the crown to fight monsters and secure artifacts, but you, the players, have a an ulterior motive. If this sounds exciting for you, which, uh, man, I don't know. Like, I guess I feel I sh- I, I want to shout this out more than anything because I had heard about the preview games, um, Night of the Hogman, Blood Cotillion, Stranger and Stranger on Crate, Crate and Crowbar. And I don't know if I had just, like, maybe they had said this and I'd missed it, but I think the pitch of, like, 1700 Stalker in rural England with the occult just, like, man... I really jump at that. I'm really thrilled to be uh, getting getting in on this. So, very exciting. Uh, you know, I'm planning, hopefully in the future, to play it with uh, you and some friends to give it a go. Um, but yeah, neat thing to have my hands on for Halloween time. Definitely a thing I think uh, worth looking out for. Definitely worth checking out the Night of the Hogmen, because I think it's pay what you want or free and uh if you like that check out the other ones and if if none of them appeal to you i would still say um you know when the time comes i'm gonna mention teeth being out and uh very excited about that so i actually have uh uh, had a recent encounter with blades in the dark i guess you could say i didn't play it but uh over the long weekend that has just passed i was visiting my friend evan in massachusetts for his wedding i was actually the officiant at his wedding and uh the night before the wedding all of us you know all the friends who were in town for the wedding were hanging out together and he had a stack of rpg books and one of them was blades in the dark and we just got to talking about it and he's been playing and he absolutely loves it so once again i feel like uh this is a bandwagon you and i need to get on need to start playing this game that everybody's talking about. I mean, we've already played Cyberpunk, which is a Forged in the Dark. Yeah. This will be Forged uh, he, in the Dark. He had uh, a space one for Forged in the Dark. Scum uh, and Villainy. That's the one. It's quite popular, that one. Scum yeah. and Villainy. The space he said it was, it was very good. And uh, I will also say, this was a, a pretty nerdy wedding. Not as nerdy as the nerd wedding you attended recently. <laughs> But still pretty nerdy. And, Man, uh, fr- apparently our friend Grant's going to the nerdiest of weddings. Like, they're doing a big session for the wedding or something. Oh, wow. He's doing an actual wedding LARP? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. Something with a witch? I don't know. It's funny, because uh, I officiated the wedding, but uh, Evan and his now wife, Jess, uh, they just went to City Hall to sign the paperwork. Like, the the ceremony that I officiated was really just like symbolic I'm, more than I'm anything. I'm pretty sure they did the same thing with 
the wedding I went to. Like, And uh, everybody called it the wedding LARP because we were just LARPing a wedding. We didn't actually, it's not legally binding this thing, but uh, we were just LARPing it. And uh, another funny detail is that being that it was a very nerdy wedding and I was officiating, I had, you know, my notes, but I needed something to like a book to have them in. So I wasn't just like holding a piece of paper while I was up there in front of the audience. And I asked Evan if he had like a big book or something or a book that he liked that I could put my notes in. And he gave me the source book for the kickstarted Lord of the Rings RPG called The One Ring. And uh, I, of course, uh, took some time to flip through that as well. Uh, also, uh, honestly, a lot of things in that uh, that RPG kind of sounded like Blades in the Dark as well. Maybe it was forged in the dark. A lot of a lot of that going around these days, it seems. Um, mm-hmm. Man, my my sister has like from the North Bay Games and Hobbies like a, an old old ass. I actually. I think she got from North Bay Games and Hobbies, but it's like one of the old, old ass Middle Earth role playing games from like, you know, back in the 80s or 90s. It's uh, it's not holding together too good. Old ass book. Anyways, all this spooky stuff. Also, you know, kind of a, a weird. Um, <laughs> it's like. Look at a podcast you listen to where people are like, oh, yeah, the time that I watched a Serbian film next to. Ken Russell. Ken Russell, and then, and then later I officiated like, a wedding from a Lord of the Rings source book. And then, uh, oh, I know a guy who's having a wedding. It has something to do with a witch. Some of our role-playing games, I don't know. Truly, we keep interest in company, Tom. I guess. Um, so, back to the tour of Citra Arha. Do I jump into my side of it? Yeah, let's dive into it. So... We left off, we were heading for the Sway, which I mentioned uh, poses a bit of an interesting situation because the Sway, the the lich in charge of this realm of Citra Arha is Nergal, who is secretly Gutbones. Gutbones is secretly Nergal. Nergal is secretly Gutbones. And so the guy that they're going around for this tour with um, is actually secretly the guy in charge of this place. And I mean, maybe he's disguised or something, but generally it poses a problem of like, if he's just rolling around with the players and somebody recognizes him or figures out who he is. So he comes up with a cover. We knew, I would mentioned ahead of time, that he was going to have some convenient cover for abandoning the party when they come to the realm that is actually his. Um, And what happened this time was that basically, uh, as you'll remember, there was a point back in the realm of, in the previous realm, I think, where they had to leave their vehicles behind. They got to a point where they couldn't go any further in the van and truck that they had gotten previously. And so basically coming to the sway, uh, Gutbone says, like, well, we're going to need to cross a lot more territories, like, a lot more ground, so um, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to get those vehicles for us, and I'm going to meet you at the next realm. So you guys just, like, try to stay out of trouble here. Just keep playing the same game, like, try to get in good with the people in charge, and then move on, you know, do whatever you need to do, and then move on. But at the next realm, I will have 
the vehicles that we left behind waiting for you. I'll meet you there. Um, I also wanted to say, I don't think that I, I think that I kind of mentioned this, but I, I, I forgot to continue mentioning it as I do these various uh, point stops in the tour of Citra Arha, is that um, so far these adventures, like I'm still doing the thing where I harvest the content from pre-written modules. And I think I had mentioned that now that we're doing the tour of Citra Arha, we are on to the third season of the Adventures League, uh, Rage of Demons, which was uh, the tie-in for the Out of the Abyss campaign book. But um, all of these stops so far in Citra Arha, they rather than each being based on a specific adventure from that season of the Adventures League or like a specific module. So far, everything has just been from the same first starting module, which, like all the other uh, seasons of the Adventures League, I believe, the first module, rather than being a standalone adventure, or, or like it is a standalone adventure, but it is also comprised of five mini-adventures, which are designed to sort of um, introduce players to the setting that that season is going to take place in. So back in the first season, there were five mini-adventures based in the city of Flan, and I used those as the first uh, missions that Alsaces did. Um, there were five mini-adventures in the city of Molemaster for the Elemental Evil campaign, and that would have also landed in the course of Alsaces. But then this time, like, basically each of these stops on Citra Arha so far is not... Uh, uh, like the content I've used, for example, um, delivering the baby goats that turn out to be mutant goats. That is just one mini adventure from a set of five mini adventures that basically comprise one module. So really, uh, all the stops in Citra Arha thus far and this one, they are all, all the content is just from those mini adventures rather than each being an adventurer's worth of content on their own. And I also just want to like shout that out because I, I don't want people thinking that I'm taking stuff from the modules and then not giving credit, you know? I do my best. I, tr I, I try. I try to remember to shout them out. So, the players, um, again, they've got this pretty standard uh, procedure now for each stop in Citra Arha where it's like they show up posing as extra planar mercenaries. They try to make contact with whoever the leader is the lich or the vampire who's in charge, then they try to get in their good graces by, like, doing something for them. And along the way, they try and commit sabotage or, or um, you know, spy work on behalf of the Empok. But in this case, because they don't have gut bones with them, he says, like, you know, try and lay low. And despite that instruction, uh, Hexakila had reason to risk an incident on the other side of the security checkpoint leading into the sway once they... Uh, leave Gutbones behind because not one but two of his targets from the Raven Queen are uh, working as guards on the other side of the checkpoint within uh, the Sway. So Hexakila kind of risks the safety of the party in order to quietly assassinate those guards. But then also assassinating those guards, uh, Hexakila was granted a flashback in which I presented the player, my brother, with a choice 
So he flashes back to the day when the ghouls attacked his village, uh, when it, his tragic backstory. And I, I said that when his village came under attack by ghouls, Hex came out of his home. He was protecting his wife, but he saw local children fleeing the undead. And I asked whether Hex chose in that moment to save the children or to stay focused on defending his wife. And Hex chose to save the children, which is a decision that I noted for later. DM will remember that, and it'll come back. Um, they cross a bridge from the checkpoint. Oh, this is a good time to mention, actually, the notes for this episode when they go up uh, from my notebook. A lot of them are actually these side-on little profiles of outlines of, like, what... Uh, like, just basically how I wanted to imagine the various realms of Citra Arha. They are just little side-on cutouts um, with basically like the silhouettes of certain key structures and whatnot. It's almost like a kind of a 2D platformer, but like on a very, very... Uh, a scale which, you know, you're, a, a dude on it would look t super tiny. Uh, I hope that makes sense. I mean, uh, hopefully you're able to see this on the notes page, whatever. Um, point is, uh, across a bridge from the checkpoint, the realm of Sway is largely composed of a bustling urban zone atop a plateau overlooking a vast sea of black ooze on the side opposite the checkpoint. I mentioned that Citra Arha is defined by this. It doesn't have water. It, it has this kind of thick black sludge but they treat it like water. It's it's water for them, basically. Not that they drink it. The undead don't need to drink water. Don't got to drink anything. But, you know, they, they, like, docked on the other side of this plateau, the players can see, like, a galleon, basically, suggesting that, like, you know, undead travel these big seas of sludge to go from one realm to another sometimes. Within the urban zone, the party, they, like... They're looking for a relatively low-key endeavor since they don't want to get into any trouble. So they seek out their next Chessie's Cupid's client within Citra Arha. And they meet Lorelei, an undead woman with a crown of spikes, uh, which I realize after trying to describe that other spiky lady, uh, it seems like a lot of them are just having crowns of spikes, maybe. is just one way to describe them. But this one was different than the other lady. She's more like a vampire in a dress with just like a crown of spikes, not like having spikes all coming out of her all which way. But upon meeting her, the party made their first match in the realms of the Nightside Eclipse by matching Lorelei with Moloch, the client that they had encountered previously. And in return for facilitating this arrangement, Lorelei gave the players the keys to her speedboat, which was docked on the far side of the sway. So now they got a way to get across this big old sea of slime. Um, in a nightclub nearby, where most of the locals appeared to be gathered, the players witnessed open descent within the nightside eclipse. Rabble-rousers, like a crowned undead in an old revolutionary garb named Adramalek, were spreading propaganda against the realm's lich, Nergal, who we know is secretly Gutbones, seeking to smear his name and inspire some kind of uprising. The party refused to get involved, but they certainly took note of the fact that there's this highly unexpected political strife going on in Citra Arha, which is otherwise, you know, a fairly mechanical system, you know? Um, 
what what's going on people protesting in Sitra Arha? How does it since when does it work like that? Uh then it's too hot in hell. Oh man, I guess it's kind of like that, I guess. Um however, the players were also you, you know, I guess it's worth mentioning because this is a thing I was really building up over the course of this act is like what they are going to see more and more as they continue and what they have already seen is that there is pretty substantial demonic incursion going on within Sitra Arha. What was once this realm of the Nightside Eclipse, somehow demons are getting in and then suddenly there is this fiendish influence uh, infiltrating Sitra Arha and... Like, I am slowly feeding that to the players as they explore, but that is what I'm slowly revealing, and I'm getting to the point of, like, when I'm going to reveal where this is coming from or whatever. I think it might actually be the very next episode. But all this to say that all this sort of mysterious stuff, like um, Mebdak back in the first realm of Swarth, uh, having these mysterious demonic experiments... Um, the fact that there is this civil strife going on in uh, the sway. I mean, part of that could be the fact that Nergal is fucked off. Like, he's supposed to be in charge, and he's fucked off to go play gut bones. But also, that sounds kind of funny. Playing gut bones. Sounds like uh, playing hooky, but for undead. He's going playing uh, I, gut bones. I, I was thinking more like, you know, uh, ham bone, right? Where you do sort of the, the slap oh, yeah, yeah, percussion on your knee. <laughs> I'm playing gut bones. It's when you do it on your belly. It's ham bone on your stomach. No, it's on your ribs, surely. Oh, yeah, there um, you go. But, uh, oh, man, you know, uh, this is a funny thing is, uh, oh, man, I, I, I think, can you hear that? No. Okay, I'm trying to do, like, it, it's basically, man, man it's, it's probably filtered out by my mic or something, but it's like, uh, I can basically fit. Oh, geez. The, you the... can, you can like pop your, your guts out of your, from no, out of your no. you, you know, like, uh, so you know how you can like, uh, displace air with your hand and your armpit to make a fart noise or like, yeah, you can also do or your like, hands, right? The... Just with your hands, right? I can put my hand and fit the, like, the the part of my palm just below my fingers i can fit those into my sternum and press on it to decom to like push the air out and make a fart noise that's gut bones. that's playing gut bones yeah i'd say that's exactly what that is <laughs> anyways we're learning all sorts of weird things about tom today watch serbian film with ken russell didn't even realize it can make a fart noise with his hand in his sternum now you got me wishing those two stories went together. Oh man! Like, I mean, it's so <laughs> funny a, that yeah, I was I was at a screening of a Serbian film. This old guy was seated next to me, so I turned to him and made a fart noise using my hand and my sternum. Turned out it was Ken Russell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even tell him how much I liked Altered States. Um, the uh, so so, uh, God, how how did we get off on this nonsense? um playing gut bones right maybe the civil strife is because nergal is off playing gut bones when he should be in charge of his realm but 
Also, what I'm kind of building up and, and what will play out later is the idea that this demonic incursion has caused such a destabilization within Citra Arha and the Nightside Eclipse that there is actually starting to be um, some contention about how the Nightside Eclipse responds to this. And that actually leads to some like actual civil conflict where it's like certain members of the Nightside Eclipse begin to believe that the people in charge are not addressing the situation properly. Um, it may have been corrupted by demons or what have you. And it leads to like actual like things like revolution within the Nightside Eclipse. But that's all getting ahead of your, ourselves. I'm just setting that up. The players are starting to tap into that. A after all this, though, the players, uh, they're approached at this club by a new swearing undead named Horror Elogium. It's another guy that we would have known from Nespyth back when the Al's Aces went to Citra uh, Arha in the sort of gateway realm. But he's just like, he's another guy that is a guy from the band Portal, uh, wears like a, a black... Uh, hood over his head or, or like like a black bag over his head that's tied on with a noose that hangs down from his neck and he's like all he's like a you know in in horror clicks there's a unique figure that's called a lynch ghost that's a ghost that has a noose hanging from its neck but then it's like tied it into an, another noose on the other end and it's like he's out for vengeance and so like i think that you know i, I don't like to like you know I feel like that conjures up something from history that's so ge like genu genuinely unpleasant that like, I don't know, you know, with the horror and the return of the repressed and what I was saying about martyrs, like maybe it's okay, but like also, I don't know. I, I don't, I say that, but I'm not sure I'd, I'd use that term lightly, you know? Where, where do you stand with some horror these days, you know? Where do I stand, like, in general, or, or what, what? It's just a thing that happens, you know? It's like, uh, it's like, you know, I was saying about how great The Exorcist is, but William Friedkin did some real bad things, you know? And I'm yeah. not in favor of that uh, whole auteur mentality that inspires, like, Tommy Wiseau to molest that poor woman, uh, you know, in front of all those people. <laughs> it's maybe uh, making it sound worse than it was, but... I still think it was bad, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so wait, what's what's your question for me, dude? Is this about like uh, idolizing people? No, I think it's just about like you know, it's old horror. You know, sometimes it's hard to, you know, you you gotta you gotta you gotta pick out the parts that are the things that are good from the things that are problematic. You know, oh, man. That's I mean, I saying. think honestly, I think it's uh, it's not just horror it's just it's just history man like i guess yeah sci-fi is a, the same way old sci-fi novels i find are the same way yeah exactly um, you know like you think, also, of, I think you think I like think... hitchcock right hitchcock i think hitchcock made some really amazing movies obviously very influential i would say psycho just as influential as the exorcist that's like, literally it, the one that tommy Wiseau calls out as uh, making his uh behavior excusable but but, you know, then you find out that Hitchcock himself was just a total piece of shit and treated people really horribly and terrorized his female leads and all that. So how do you reconcile all that? I don't know. It's it's pretty hard. You know, uh, I think maybe it's, you know, the thing is that I called up like, it's also like it's because horror, because it deals with the return of the repressed and ideas like that is like it specifically deals with those 
things in society that are like really unpleasant. Like that's the thing about the lynch ghost or martyrs being about violence against women is like, you know, it's uh it's not necessarily it's not a fun thing is what it is. It's like, well, it's it's a cliche to say, but horror is also just a reflection of, you know, the anxieties of any given time period in which well, it's that, made. That's what the return of the press. I, I guess I should say not everybody's a dumbass who wasted money on a film studies degree <laughs> for the listeners uh, the return of the repressed is this idea that elements of society that we uh, repress through social norms will inherently come out to get us as like a monster in a horror movie basically so certainly yeah. and uh, carries on today i i would say that uh something like jordan peele's us a pretty good example of that exactly us is a textbook example of return of the repressed as is martyrs um you know but but i think it is you know and it's funny because we've got this sort of halloween spooky horror theme going on with this episode but uh you know it's the thing of like you know world of darkness i feel like world of darkness has thrown a lot more problematic shit at us than palladium or dungeons and dragons in all the stuff that we've um looked at in the tavern and i think part of that is that need for horror to be uh dark and challenging and the result is that uh, may sometimes maybe maybe the best words being edgy yeah you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's that thing. It's like you want to be... If you are um, addressing in through horror the return of the repressed, this idea of something in society that, uh, you, you know, uh, is being kept under wraps but is a major problem, um, you know, addressing that problem, you always got to be careful about how you treat it. Uh, and And I think, you know... There's certainly a case to be made for martyrs is like too heavy on just like depicting violence against women. Like maybe, maybe they should have done it different. Maybe, you know, there's even, uh, you can read stuff about, uh, the famous scene with, with Reagan and the crucifist in the exorcist. And it's like, uh, William Friedkin says that, uh, some other people would have done that scene for longer. He thinks he did it for the right amount of time. Some people say it shouldn't have been there. Do you know what uh, I like, Tom? Is I like that you just called it a crucifest. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Whoops. <laughs> I can't say C words at all. Compare, campaign, crucifest. Can't say nothing right. It's also worth mentioning that the players are still carrying the full crucifist arsenal around. Uh, if not wielding them, then also keeping them in like a uh, bag of holding and things like that. Because there was this idea that like having acquired every piece of a set, it was like maybe that's important later. Maybe it's going to be important that we have the whole set. And I kind of like didn't discourage that idea. I was like, man, maybe it is one of those things where if you keep the whole set to the end of the RPG, there's a special interaction you get with a character. Combine them all into a super gun. The Crucifix Launcher. Um, anyways. So, uh, Horologium, he's this noose ghost, we'll say. A hangman ghost is what he is. Who claimed uh, to be a representative of Nergal, the reigning lich, which, behind the scenes, we can sort of see is like gut bones, 
knows that he can't be there. So as the ruler of this realm, he taps one of his minions to be like, you go talk to the, these ones. Like in his way, Gutbones is still watching over the players. They just don't know it because this guy who talks to them is just working on behalf of Gutbones as a representative of Nurgle. But Horologium, he approaches the characters. He seems quite nervous, and he requests with some urgency that the party assist him in investigating this hidden vault uh, beneath, like, in the realm of, of the Sway, uh, basically sort of, like, tunneled into that big plateau that everything's placed on. But as extra planar mercenaries, he wants them to go down into this vault and check it out. The players take the job and they proceed to this nearby warehouse that provides like the access to the vault. It's hidden underneath. Um, but at the warehouse or outside the warehouse, they meet another figure, this skull faced figure in a jacket with curling ram's horns and long fangs by the name of Lucifuge, who uh, is carrying when they meet him, they find him carrying a long, flat, rectangular briefcase and it's just like, it's the type of briefcase that you see and you're like, oh, that guy's got a sniper rifle in there. That guy's got the pieces of a rifle in that case so he can unpack it for a, an assassination later. You know, the kind of like, just like smooth, wrong shaped suitcase that I'm talking about. That's like, oh man, that's a, that's a sniper guy's case. No one for sure. Classic Hong Kong, Hong Kong action staple. Um, so they see that Lucifuge has this case and the players ask for assistance in investigating the warehouse and the players immediately realize, well, this guy, he's probably looking for that hidden vault. Like if he wants to investigate the warehouse, like he says, can you look around it for me? And they're like, well, if he were to look around himself, he would find this hidden vault inevitably. So that's probably what he's looking for. So in the long run, they know that what he wants is what he really wants to investigate is the vault, which they're already checking out. So they say, all right, we'll, we'll help you out. We'll check it out in exchange for that case and whatever's in it. And he's like, all right, that's a deal. The players uh, proceed down into the vault, descending hundreds of feet into a subterranean passage, sticky with fresh blood. And the players are able, uh, the first thing that they come to this chamber with the players are able to bypass a trap involving a series of trapped statues. Basically, to get through this chamber, you've got to walk by these three statues. There's also letters on the wall, and the players see smears of blood on some of the characters, and they deduce that the pattern of letters, or, or the, the letters, they, they figure out a pattern. It's like every... Basically, the letters are in groups of three, and every first letter, if you line those up, they spell out the name of the first statue which is the Slayer. The second one is the Maiden. That's every second letter in the group of three. And every third letter makes the last one with its Lord Venom. And so this is, this is straight out of the Adventurer's League thing. It's the Slayer is like a knight that attacks you with his sword or something. Um, the Maiden, I can't remember what it does with the Venom. It's, it spits poison. Maybe I'm just making that up. Maybe they're just statues that attack people. The point is... If you say the name of each statue, the statue deactivates and you can walk by. The players proceed beyond that uh, puzzle to another puzzle. They're confronted. They come to a room where they're confronted by a series of nine dark maws, big, just gaping maws. And they have to choose which one to go through. 
so that first puzzle where they're like figuring out the names, like your players, they figured it out. I assume. Did you yeah, have to like help them it through? Out. There is a clue that is like um, whoever has last seen this thing was like bleeding and touched certain ah. letters in sequence, so they could sort of figure out like, oh, there's blood on the first letter of this group of three letters, and then there's blood on the first letter of the next group of three letters. Oh, what happens if we say all those letters in, like, you know, they put that together and it sort of does like uh, the first letters all make, all put together, say Slayer. Next one says Maiden. Next one says Venom. They're all metal names too. You know, maybe it's very possible that the names are completely (laughs) different in the adventure and I just changed them to metal names. Because Slayer, Iron Maiden, and Venom. That's sick. Love that. But I'm honestly like, so so they they figured out that uh, statue, got that that puzzle, got the extra XP, bypassed the statues. That's all cool. But I'm more excited because I like this. uh, I like this kind of you know mystery doors room. You know, you you come to a room and there's nine doors, and it's like which door lead ye to the truth you know and the players come to this door and instead of door or this room and instead of doors it's just big gaping maws in, of darkness they gotta choose which one to go through oh jeez, um, uh none <laughs> there's a maddening map of the endless layers of the abyss uh drawn on the floor uh, but also there's disturbed dust around the eighth maw, which reveals the correct path through. Um, finally, passing through that maw, the party comes to a lab where experiments of a decidedly demonic nature are being conducted. I mean, as if it wasn't enough of a hint, there was a freaking drawing of the abyss in the last room. Uh, corpses have been lashed to pillars, cauldrons of boiling limbs... A demonic creature forming on a slab alongside a bloody chanting drone. The party attempts to stop the ritual, then dretches. Dretches emerge from the cauldrons. Do you know dretches, McGill? Dretches. Nah, you know, I don't know them offhand. They're just like another kind of Dungeons and Dragons demon, you know? Like, there's also mains. But the, the cauldrons of limbs, dretches burst out of those. Um, they're kind of, they're, they're smelly demons. Um, they're small. Uh, they're kind of pig-looking. Uh, lumpy boys. Yeah, they look kind of funny. Yeah, they're pretty, they're, I like that spooky. Fet, fetid cloud? Oh, man, he's got just a big stinky cloud that follows it around. Yeah, so those things jumped oh, out to very, attack the... very, very low int. I'd probably just have these be uh, more more comedy than uh, than opponents. Well, you know, the players Boink. come in and there's this crazy demonic ritual and then these little guys jump out of uh, cauldrons full of boiling limbs. And they're like, oh shit, where these guys come from? And they ought to fight these dretches. Meanwhile, there's all these mains showing up, summoning out of no- spawning out of nowhere. They're all clambering towards the demon on the slab. Uh, and when one main is slain, another takes its place. So the players have to slay all the dretches and hold off the mains, disrupting the ritual. 
stop the demon on the slab from taking its full form. If they had failed, the mains had fed into that form. It would have formed into a Goristro, which is a quite powerful uh, hulking demon. But they managed to disrupt the ritual. They return from the vault. They report their findings to Lucifuge, who in return uh, gives them the experimental Thanatos antimatter rifle that he was carrying in that case of his. And from there, they re- go to Horologium, who seems quite distressed by the news of demonic experimentation within the realm. And finally, the party proceeds down to the docks, getting into their new speedboat and heading off across the black waters for the realm of Rhythm by boat. And upon reaching the shores of Rhythm, they were reunited with not just gut bones, but also their van and their truck. They got their ride back. All their rides. Hell yeah. Crank the Rolling Stones and let the road trip resume. I mean, yeah. I I mean, it's all been part of the road trip. They just didn't have wheels for a little while. Any thoughts on that, McGill? I, I mean, you know me. Tom, you know that uh, I love a, a campaign or a series of adventures centered around someone's ride. So I'm just happy to hear that they got their wheels back. It is funny to kind of imagine like each of these Citra Arha style, the, each of these Citra Arha stops as being like, like imagine if you, you know, similar to the way I took the content from a D&D adventure to make them, you take the content from my stories and then make them into a sci-fi game like the verse like maybe maybe you just do the next season of the verse is just uh you redo all these citra arha stops but as uh the verse instead of nightside clips it's the alliance (laughs) you're going around alliance planets and uh yeah i was gonna say we can still we can even keep like the demons and stuff and you just do the verse but cross it with event horizon yeah Maybe that's that. That's why they're in Alliance territories. That the Alliance did the Doom uh, project that opened the portal to hell. Yeah. Hell, that, that that's basically. I mean, really, you that's know basically the translation of the story of the narrative that I'm doing with Citraarha here. Like, you know, instead of why are there demons in Citraarha, you just say why are there demons in the Alliance held territories. And you can just, uh, you can ignore the movie canon and say that that's where the Reavers came from. From a portal yeah. to hell. Or maybe, you know, that's... Man, where, where, did they, where did the movie say that they came from? I mean, the, the movie says that uh, the Reavers were... Oh, I'm trying to remember the exact thing about it. Like, the Reavers were initially people. Yeah, I mean, in the show, they basically say that, like, they just went so out into, like, deep space that they went That they crazy. went insane, which I liked. But in the movie, I, I'm going to have to, like, look this up. But it's something like there's a, a whole planet that was wiped out through an alliance experiment. And that is what resulted in the Reavers. Oh, it's in the movie. In the movie, they, they well, not quite. Uh, in the movie, they are they find like a planet where everybody is dead, and it's like the point of origin of the Reavers. 
Miranda is discovered to be a planet located beyond a region of space swarming with Reavers. The crew flies to the planet. Um, they disguise Serenity as a Reaver ship and travel to Miranda undetected. They find it's 30 million colonists dead, and a recording explains that an experimental chemical to suppress aggression had been added into Miranda's atmosphere to create a utopia. The population became so docile they stopped performing all activities of daily living and just placidly died, but a small proportion of them had the opposite reaction and became insanely aggressive and violent. The Alliance had created the Reavers, and this was their secret point of origin. So yeah, so that's basic, basically what I said. I like the idea that they all came from the same place. It's dumb. Yeah, I way prefer the idea that these like insane space cannibals were just driven ma mad by the vastness of the universe. Space madness. Space madness. McGill. Tom. It sounds like we're all done with my side of things. Time to get into the burning wheel. I guess. All right. Well, we got. <laughs> 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 so um we have done everything in character burning except one last thing and this is something that doesn't involve the charred character burner app that we've been using so we can put yeah i'm all out of buttons yeah we can put uh put aside our character sheet there and talk just about beliefs and instincts so beliefs and instincts according to the burning wheel, are the most important part of your character because they are the method by which we breathe life into all those numbers and lists. A player must design beliefs for his character. He may take up to three, but no less than one. A belief is three things. A characterization, a goal, and an indication of how you want to be rewarded for playing your character. Where I feel like I am, like, tiptoeing into uh into dangerous territory here tom because of <laughs> because of that <laughs> word rewarded for playing your character but i i i sort of get what they're saying here because it's similar to um i mean it's like the sense that xp is a reward for playing your character it's like in uh blaze in the dark for example your the things that you advance for are kind of based on what kind of character you choose. Uh, it was a thing recently with the McElroy brothers on, a, on the Adventure Zone playing uh, Blades in the Dark is that they were asked what their, what their approach style would be, and uh, they decided their approach style would be subtle, which has led to a lot of um, major questions about you know how this podcast usually goes, right? <laughs> like, you know that if you just blow everything up, you're not going to level up now because you've chosen subtle as your advancement criteria. Like, So uh, part of the reason, though, I say, like, tiptoeing into dangerous territory, uh, I don't know about beliefs and instincts. I mean, we're going to talk about them. But after beliefs and instincts and, uh, you know, that final step of burning this character... I do want to talk a bit about Artha points, which are one of the many different like point currencies on your sheet. And those, Tom, I think you're going to take issue with because they are a lot <laughs> like they're like inspiration, but even more sort of complicated. And they are definitely like rewards for creating fun moments in the game. 
But it's like, uh, but maybe you'll like it because it's a more set system and it's less arbitrary than inspiration. We'll see. Um, when writing, I don't like it if it's a wishy-washy. When writing beliefs for your character, make sure that at least one of them is an active goal, something that your character can accomplish. Like, I will topple my brother the Duke no matter the cost. And it, you know, you see how that sentence includes like an action. I will topple my brother the Duke, and then the condition is no matter the cost. So like, uh, it's it, you you want something that's like rounded that has sort of a give and take actions and conditions associated with it. Um, oh, am I supposed to pick one now? Well, here I'll I'll uh, it, here are some examples of starting beliefs. Um, if you have an object or artifact that is very important to your character, write a belief about it. Uh, if there is an NPC who is important to you, write a belief about him or her. If you're interested in or care about another player character, write a belief about him or her. If you have a philosophy for your character, write a belief about it. At the beginning of the character burning process, you and the GM discuss the setting of the game and the situation. Uh, we're just doing like some pretty standard high fantasy here. And uh, you can use this in your beliefs as well. Incorporate what you care about, uh, what you hate, or what you want to change into your beliefs. When writing goals, try not to make them too big. Try to create goals for yourself that you can at least attempt to accomplish in a session. Don't write goals for things you'll get in the future. If you have a big goal, break it down into steps and write a belief about the step you can take a shot at right now. Broad, vague statements are bad. Things like, the world is doomed is a bad belief. Uh, say something like, this world is doomed if I should fail to save the princess. Now you know that you're going to save the princess and there's like conditions and actions and consequences involved. You want to be colorful. Um, I will save the princess is pretty simple, but you can make it more colorful and more in character when you write your belief. And then it all, this also says work together. During a session, not all players are going to get all of their beliefs into play. Tie in one or two beliefs with different characters. Use the other beliefs as hooks for additional sessions. Uh, beyond that, not all of the players' priorities are going to be appropriate to one game, and that's cool too. Negotiate with your GM. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about some beliefs for our guy Udo. You have to at least pick one. You can have up to three beliefs. Um, because we know some I, we know some things he wants. We know that he doesn't like using a bow, but he also doesn't want to like attract too much but attention. I can to use a bow. Yeah, but he prefers Make a crossbow. Oh, good crossbow, better. I will be the first goblin to start a new goblin crossbow detachment. That's a good one. Yeah, the Black Legion. Yeah, we've got a nice goal in there, a nice action that you can take to get it. Sure. Are there any other beliefs that you want Udo to have? Um, I haven't uh, thought of any others yet. And you know, uh, well, let's let's stick with that one because you know we need a minimum of one. I think that's a good starting point. Also, Udo is pretty yeah. pretty young, uh, so yeah. it's a it's a fairly good goal for like a fourteen year old goblin. Um, it occurs to me that you, you must kind of like aspects of this because I'm realizing so much of this system is based around like 
sets of three, right? Like there are the three different shades that you can have for like your skills. Um, you love me a three. One to three beliefs. And you also need one to three instincts. So a player might, may choose one to three instincts for his character. These are almost the opposite of beliefs. Instincts are game mechanical priorities that a player describes for his character. Um, when a player sets an instinct, he's telling the GM, this is how I want my guy to act in this situation. This is, it's a bit like what you're saying with the McElroys, like, uh, you know, I want a subtle approach. So simplicity is key here. Here are some samples. If there's a cave-in, then I push the youngest to safety. If confronted, I take an aggressive stance. You can use always, never, and when statements. I always cast spells carefully and patiently. I never work quickly. When surprised, I draw my knife. Instincts must be tight and narrowly focused. This makes it possible for players to actually use instincts in play, and it makes it easier for the GM to introduce conflicts where those instincts generate complications. Uh, here's just a little bit more about instincts. Instincts allow players to set conditions for their characters that otherwise bend the rules. Do you have a draw sword instinct? Well, then your character's sword is drawn at the start of combat without having to spend an action drawing it. Instincts can allow you to bypass a test, but they assume you made the test sometime before trouble started. Anytime you can slip in a, my guy would have already done that based on an instinct that is on your sheet, you are on the right track. Once you're in the middle of trouble, once events are being narrated moment to moment, it's too late for instincts to have an effect. Uh, so our instinct, so instincts are action-oriented macros. Absolutely, it's one way of thinking about it. Think of it as the like the mechanical level. Instincts tell the group that my guy functions on a slightly different in a slightly different ma manner than the baseline rules. He's so aggressive that he starts combat in an aggressive stance, even though other characters have to take an action to assume an aggressive stance. Um, there's also the character level. This works on the principle that actions speak louder than words. Instincts are the most primal, compact way of telling everybody what your guy is about. My character has a few beliefs that do too, but most of those are a big picture thing. If my dwarf has an instinct, if there's a cave-in, I push the youngest to safety, that tells the entire group a lot about who he is on a base level. He's careful and aware of dangers, that come with being underground, and his first thought is to protect someone else. And on top of that, someone else is the youngest, meaning he puts a value on youth. So the group might rightly come to the conclusion that since he's the oldest dwarf in the party, he has taken uh, a certain life path. This instinct stems from a desire to protect children, good grist for the role-playing mill. And then a uh, specific response to specific stimulus. Protect my friends from harm is not an instinct. It's too vague. How do you protect your, your comrades from harm? What defines harm? It could be a sword strike, a falling rock, a faux pas at a ball. Ways to protect comrades are equally undefined. Therefore, it's too much ground for an instinct to cover. Instincts are split-second actions, decisions, and reactions. So my instincts are, I never wear shoes. I always make sure that I have money, and I always scout ahead. Like, those are some... Some examples. So uh, what are one to three instincts for Udo? Uh, I never face a threat up close. I always take it on from a range, from a distance. Yeah. Um, I always have arrows ready 
There's a tri that one's a bit tricky because in the skills it told me that with my uh skill in fletching I think it is I can make pointless arrows but I need a blacksmith to put points on them so I guess like can I does does instinct like override that basically can I just always have pointed arrows or if I say that do I end up with I always have pointless arrows on me at least I uh, from what I glean from the rules here you can override that and always have pointed arrows on you because that is your instinct. Your instinct is always to have those stocked. Um, so, yeah, I guess so. And I get up to three of these, right? Yeah. So I'm, I never take on a threat up close and personal. I always have my crossbow ready. And um, I never try to stand out from the crowd. I think those are all great, and uh, they also really mesh well with that uh, that belief. You want to start a goblin crossbow battalion. But I don't want to stand out from the crowd, so that's tricky. It, yeah, you want to start the battalion, but you don't want to lead it. Or I just want to start it in secret. Ah, I like that too. Yeah, as the source book says here, that's some good grist for the role-playing mill. And that is the character burning process. We've come to the end of it. So you now have a, a full-fledged character with all, all 12 steps of the character burning process covered. But that is not the end of the burning wheel. Uh, there's one more thing I want to talk about on this episode, and th then maybe I'll do like one more episode on this to cover the last few mechanics, because I've been reading the source book and watching some uh, some people play it on, in some YouTube videos. Um, and, uh, like, something I'll talk about next time is just, like, how skill checks work, how combat works. Um, but I want to talk first about Artha points, because this is the thing where, you know, I was reading through the beliefs and the idea of rewards, and I was like, oh, man, I got to get Tom's opinion on this especially after our discussion about how much you dislike inspiration. So, Burning Wheel uses a point-based reward Hate system. to be inspired. <laughs> Most often the points are awarded for creating interesting situations by playing out, on, and off a character's beliefs and instincts. The points awarded are called Artha in the game. Artha helps the character overcome obstacles and eventually hone abilities to mythical levels of excellence. There are three types of Artha, Fate, Persona, and Deeds, each with their own effect on the game. While it's cool to be rewarded for doing something neat, there is a more important aspect to the process. The flow of Artha creates a connection between player, character, and GM based on themes and issues important to their game. Beliefs, instincts, and traits are the primary conduit between the player, his character, and the Artha system. Setting out beliefs, instincts, and traits, BITs, for his character, a player states to the GM and the group what his goals in play are for the character, and then he lets everyone know how and when he wants to be rewarded for playing the character. For example, a player creates a rebellious peasant character with a belief that class is meaningless, no one deserves my respect by birth alone. 
when this character encounters his noble betters, everyone can expect trouble. He's going to create it. And because it's one of his beliefs, he'll be rewarded for creating interesting, meaningful, and difficult situations in this vein. So what do you think about this so far, Tom? Because this really does seem a lot like inspiration, right? I think the key is that you you, the player, choose what it's going to be, right? Like, I've talked about that issue of, like, a new player being like, but how do I get that when they see someone else get inspiration? But for this, you are the one who decided how you got it. You know exactly how to get it. See, I think that's uh, that is a very good distinction. Like, yeah, it is very much that... In advance, you're saying, you're basically writing down on your sheet, if I adhere to these rules that I have set for myself, I will be rewarded in this particular way. The GM has a heavy role in Artha. He's got to create situations to challenge the player's beliefs. He's also allowed to create his own parameters for the story. Players that work with the GM and accomplish great deeds can earn even greater rewards. F- if I could interrupt, yes. I just want to say that what you were saying just then... Sorry, read read that part back uh, just Just now. the bit about the GM's role? Uh, before that. Uh, the example, you mean? No, the GM's oh. role. No, I remember now. Sorry. What you said about the GM taking an active role and making sure that there are opportunities yes. for that... That is exactly what I was saying about how I developed my approach to virtue and vice in World of Darkness. Ah, uh, yes. Is that I, I, there used to be that problem of like the player needing to go out and look for the opportunity to fulfill it. And now I have learned, like this suggests, to instead build the game around that. And here, this next paragraph really hammers that home. At first, the arrangement may seem a little too carrot and stick, but it is more subtle than that. Players state their goals and how they want to be rewarded. They have as much control over the stick as the GM does, but the GM also has the power to provide greater rewards for epic deeds within the world. I have a good example that could apply to my goblin. Sure. So, in line with that idea of, like, he never takes on a threat face-to-face, maybe... My goblin is in an opportunity where he is in relatively close quarters with like a, an orc or something, and he could take the chance to stab that orc in the back while he's close to him to like save one of his companions or something, but he chooses instead to run away and hide somewhere and load his bow, leaving his companion open, but I could get Arthur points for that because I made that decision. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Now, there are a few more things here that uh, that are pretty interesting. Of course, the burning wheel is never simple. So, there are three types of Artha, fate, persona, and deeds. Fate is earned by walking the character's destined path. And each of these types of Artha points can be spent on different things. So, fate points can be spent on minor boosts and aids. Persona Artha is earned by idiomatic role-playing, breaking out of the mold of the aforementioned destiny, and by accomplishing personal goals, it can be spent to modify die rolls. And then lastly, Deeds Artha marks a character's accomplishments beyond his immediate and personal goals, going beyond what is desired to what is needed. 
Deed points are the hardest to earn and can be spent to heavily modify die rolls. Now here's here's this. Th- I was hoping one of those would give me resource points. Uh, no, not quite. But you know, there is a chart here. It's entirely possible that one of these aids might be resource points. As the player move, uh, sorry, as the player spends Artha to improve his character's chance of survival, he moves towards an epiphany. Every time a player tests one of his character's skills or stats and spends Artha on the test, anytime you basically would, you know, to put it in D&D terms, anytime you'd spend inspiration on a, on a check, that ability gets one step closer to the next shade. When the requisite number of Artha-enhanced tests is completed, the ability automatically and immediately shifts one step lighter. So... Uh, you, one of your skills is, uh, is crossbow, right? Oh yeah. So if you spend Artha on a set number of instances of Udo using his crossbow, you will go from having that skill as a black shade to a gray shade, which means he's like becoming more heroic, uh, more of an epic level character using that crossbow. That's when I finally get enough respect to start my own battalion. So I'm like the goblin sharp. So yeah, here's here's another little bit about Artha that again, like I'm just I'm so curious to hear how you will react to some of these things. Artha is awarded at the end of the session by consensus according to the criteria described here. Players may nominate one another for Artha Awards, specifically fate and persona points, but not deeds. Players may nominate the GM's NPCs for Artha Awards. The GM is obligated to accept this nomination. Fate Artha is rather common. A few points are earned every session. Persona points are gained as personal goals are accomplished, so their frequency of award is entirely up to the gameplay, but usually only one or two per session. Deeds are awarded at the end of a long series of personal goals that result in the character accomplishing the really big thing. So here's where things are getting muddy. And again, I'm curious. It's like up to the players to nominate each other. What do you think about that? Nominate Sorry. So you nominate each other. There there are other conditions that like there are a bunch of conditions that uh, I'll read out where you gain Artha points that are like set, but one of the ways that you can gain Artha points is other players can nominate each other for Artha awards, specifically Fate and Persona Arthur. Yeah, I guess that's okay. I mean, because this is where it seems like more arbitrary, right? Like that's that again, sort of seems almost like like inspiration, like a player being like, "Man, that was really cool. We should reward that guy for doing something cool." Yeah, I mean, it's a bit friendlier, I think, than the idea of just having the DM be in control yeah, of that. Yeah, that's fair. It does remind me a lot of in Fiasco the way that the players choose the success or failure of a scene as it un- as it unfolds, you know? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And you're right. Like, inspiration is very much all up to the, the DM. Like, I don't know. I feel differently about the DM. You know, that whole thing about, like, the DM giving me a treat or something. 
Um, I feel differently when it's the players doing it and they can all do it for each other. Right. I think it's interesting that the that the notes here include too that uh, the players can nominate NPCs. That's kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. that's kind of nice. Just be like, man, that NPC was super cool. Let's give them some Martha. Um, I'm not going to read the full list because the the list of all the ways in which you can earn the different types of Artha, it's a few pages long, but I'll give you a smattering here. And it really is like, like, I, I still feel like there are a lot of connections to inspiration here, but you're right. The, the distinguishing things are just that, like, there's a list of conditions. It's not arbitrary in that same way. So, like, Fate Artha... There's, there's a lot more control of what meeting those parameters means. Like, 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 well, uh, like it's a lot more defined. Or, or at least you have the tools in your hands to define them for yourself, rather than just saying you reward good role-playing, which can be kind of a nebulous... Well, okay, concept. okay. So here, we're like, already the first item here on how you can earn Fate Artha. I need to know your thoughts on this, Tom. Fate points are earned for manifesting the character's beliefs in a convincing and entertaining manner. Entertaining doesn't only mean funny. We all enjoy a good dramatic performance now and again. This award is given when playing a belief serves a purpose and drives the game forward. It is a very open condition, so there's a lot of room to get a character's beliefs involved. I don't know. I mean, I think... I'm cool with this until it says like in a in an enter a convincing and entertaining manner. Man, whatever they did the role playing, give them the point. Fate points are. This also like makes me wonder like would I get to a point where like I start to like take on the negative aspect of this is like ah that wasn't that cool. <laughs> like people <laughs> go to high five this one dude for this thing he did and I'm like ah. Eh. You're like that that, that could have been better. <laughs> Yeah. Um, fate point. It's like when people tell me, "Oh, that was a good one, Tom," and I roll my eyes, like ah, I can do better. Yeah, it wasn't that great. I'm, my own. <laughs> now I now I really want to see you playing a game of the Burning Wheel, where the other players are like, "Man, we really like that, Tom. We want to nominate you for some fate, Arthur." And you're like, "Nah, you know, I just just wait. I can do better." <laughs> this was the literal experience of me playing uh, Cards Against Humanity. My best joke was when the bride came by and asked how I was doing. I said, well, I'm the most novel thing in the world. I'm a white person being offensive. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm playing cards against my better judgment. And, like, everybody's going, ah, this guy's so funny. And I'm just sitting there like I'm above this. Well, yeah. I've, I've man, cards against humanity is like a whole other topic of conversation when it comes to games. Um. Fate points are earned for playing instincts when such play gets the character in trouble or creates a difficult or awkward situation. Here's an example of that. This character has the instinct, I draw my sword at the first sign of trouble. Uh, the character is at court pleading his case. Suddenly, in walks his nemesis. The player doesn't have to draw his sword. He can resist his instinct because it's going to cause trouble. But if he plays it out, he gets a fate point. But that's like the opposite of what I was saying with my idea where I don't save my friend because I don't stab people. 
Does it have another version, uh, an opposite version of this? Well, let's see here. It, it says here, uh, if the GM and other players feel a player is being disruptive with his instincts, then Artha does not have to be rewarded. However, if you're playing your game for humor, then go ahead and grant it. I, I feel like this, uh, the, this list is getting lost in the weeds. Yeah, I'm, I, what I'm asking is like... Um... You know, I, I feel because in my example, the reason I'm getting Artha is because I chose to take a penalty for being true to my character, whereas it's saying that you can get rewarded for playing against character under the right circumstances. So I guess in my example, really, if I chose to stab the orc to save my friend despite my instinct, then I get the point. And I feel like it should be the other way around. Yeah, well, I'm like I'm seeing because then because the, the, then what is driving me to play my instinct, right? Right, like what I'm getting from from all these different ways of earning Artha is just like I feel like it, while they're specifying things, I feel like it's sort of boiling down to if it relates to like your character's beliefs and instincts, and you play it in a convincing way. So your character has the instinct to, you know, always have his crossbow at the ready. But you're going into a situation where, like, you're going to a masquerade ball where you're not supposed to have a weapon. Well, your character decides to resist his instinct to have his crossbow at the ready. And that also allows you to earn points. But you, you'd also earn points if he insisted on having his crossbow at the ready. Like, it really, for all the specificity, it all comes down to sort of, like, as long as you do it in a way that everybody thinks is pretty cool. It sounds like it's just an attempt to make like narrative experience points. Yes. Because literally at this point, it sounds like you're just being given points for playing the game, which is what experience yes, points are. Yes, exactly. Well, like here, humor. A fate point is earned if a player can stop the table dead with humor while in character. See there, there's a lot of players that would be uh, old holdout Tom rolling his eyes. Yep. Tom's the only one stopping you from getting that Arthur because he wants to hear a witty non sequitur like, like he does on the comedy bang bang. And like this. So persona Arthur, when a player captures the mood of the table perfectly and further drives the story onward, one persona point is awarded. Moments like you know, great actually, speeches, is... desperate decisions, or gruesome revenge fall into this category. The player really must go it... above and beyond in his role-playing to earn a persona point for this. The, the humor one actually brings me to one of my biggest inherent problems with Cards Against Humanity beyond the fact of, like, what it is, which is, like, it, it really, like... You ever, like, do you have an experience of doing a Cards Against the Humanity? Like, you put down a card and you're like, oh, this is so clever. And then someone just, like, doesn't get it. Or more importantly, like, the person who's judging in that moment, like, does not understand the joke you've I'm, made. I'm about to, Like, that I'm would about be the to... most frustrating thing in the universe is, like, fucking, <laughs> I made a joke and literally everyone at the table laughed except one guy who's too fucking stupid to, make, to like, get the joke. And he's the one I doing the voting. I literally... <laughs> 
I'd be literally angry at that guy for withholding my Artha because like that. And that would be an awful scene is that then everyone at the table is trying to explain this joke to this guy so that this guy can get the experience point for telling the joke. So, um, so cards against humanity. You're asking if I ever been in a situation like that. Uh, so, uh, f- fair warning to listeners, it's, this is going to get a little blue because Cards Against Humanity is all blue humor. Blue meaning adult. Um, or or it's, you know, actively jokes about the Holocaust. But, well, yeah. yeah. But uh, so the number one thing that I... The number one card in Cards Against Humanity that I always end up having to explain to other players is what Smegma is. Oh, of course. Every time, every single time it's played, someone's like, what is that? And you have to be like, oh, God, okay. (laughs) But it's not, it's it's no longer um, funny or or even offensive after that. They're just like, ew. (laughs) Yeah, I I remember actually, it it was actually just today. I was laughing my ass off at this. There's this dumb, I was just mentioning comedy, Bang Bang. They did a bit once where someone came on and they were like one of those dance moms, um, but they'd like come under fire because the dance troupe that they had at the local school had been accused of uh, doing dance moves that were too, uh, you know, suggestive or provocative, which is like a real thing is you, you see these horrible things where tiny little girls are like grinding on each other and stuff. But then when asked what, she was accused of making the children do that was so suggestive. She said, well, we got a review that said that the children looked like they were performing a reach around. And <laughs> one of the other comedians <laughs> dies. Like He's like, a reach around. I'm failing to see what dance move could even approximate that <laughs> appearance. <laughs> and um, I remember telling, like, I was crying laughing about that. And then, like, I think it was my dad was like, I don't even know what a reach around <laughs> is. no. <laughs> Well, oh, boy, let's pull up Urban Dictionary. Um, here are a couple of things that you can earn Persona uh, Artha for. And again, very curious to hear your thoughts on these ones, Tom. These ones I, I think are actually kind of neat. Uh, being the workhorse character, the most relied upon in a given scenario, is worth a Persona point. This is for the mundane stuff, having that piece of gear that makes a scene go, having a skill to get the other character safely through danger, just generally slaving away behind the scenes to make it all work. And, and, this goes with it, MVP, being voted the most valuable player for a scenario earns a persona point. MVP is for the character who drives the story to its conclusion, the character who shines in the last moments and about whom everyone agrees Damn, we couldn't have done it without them. These awards are generally given at the end of a scenario or adventure or campaign, and they are not granted by the GM. Once a scenario is concluded, all participating players vote for the workhorse and the MVP, and the GM gets one vote on each, just like the other players. Yeah, I'm I'm cool with that. You know, I... I was originally imagining it as not something you vote for after, but something that in the moment it's like, oh my god, you you brought the torch? Points. Points to this guy. Hope he wins the internet. Apparently it's it's at the end. And then deeds, Artha, are rare and reserved solely. But then also that's good, I think, because then the voting is like 
part of the game, right? Like there's no uh, yeah. Like, I I actually I really like I really like the idea of like MVP and workhorse uh, like votes at the end. It reminds me of they should do it like Goldeneye. They should also have like uh you know uh an award for like pacifist and stuff and like uh i don't know i can't remember what the yeah other i was i was actually gonna make a similar comparison but with the game worms right like those worms games right at right, the end exactly. of each match it's always like most suicidal worm the one that always like you know accidentally yeah. kills itself and things like that yeah lemming award where's the ammo where's yeah, the yeah, yeah. marksmanship award most professional most harmless most deadly that i'm pretty cool with and i mean yeah, the interest. It's just it's interesting sort of seeing it broken down like this and when compared to something like Inspiration because I do feel like they both sort of come from the the same intent, like the the same place of intent, but they're handled very differently in in I also I like the idea that if you say you got rid of all the other Artha, but you said that at the end of every session Everyone is going to have to vote for, you know, however many honor, uh, honorifics to go around the the table. And then that is just like your XP payout every time. Like, I like how set that would be because then everybody knows of roughly how much XP they can expect to get um, based on how many rewards there are relative to how many players there are in the group. Hmm. And... uh yeah, I, I would like that um, because that is even, you know, that is a more controlled quantity than even XP in a D&D &D game. Because, you know, uh, at least then you know every session somebody is going to get each point. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So here's a little... I like the idea of voting being a part of the aftermath phase of the game. Well, and I like the idea, too, that... Uh... Not only is it voted on by the players, but the GM is just treated the same as a player in that situation. Does make it and I think yeah, feel a lot more fair. So deeds, Artha, uh, are the last type and they are rare and reserved solely for accomplishing goals larger than a character's personal agenda. To qualify for this reward, you must do something that benefits more than just the character and do it for reasons other than personal gain. Such an accomplishment must come with some cost or sacrifice. It's got to hurt a little to attain this level. Exacting revenge on your enemies through a brilliant plan is great, but it's only worth a persona point. Hitching yourself to a cause that transforms the setting but doesn't directly benefit you or your friends is worth a deeds point. And here's an example. The players all had personal reasons to infiltrate a particular city, foment a rebellion, and overthrow the government. Accomplishing that task, however grand, is worth a persona point. But in the end, they not only overthrew the slaver tyrants ruling the city, but they then handed control back to the rightful government when they could have just taken that power themselves. That is worth a deeds point. I can see, I can yeah, see why it would um, be rare, but yeah, like I get that. Yeah, I was in the battle fighting with the orcs, and then I realized uh, as I lined up my shot to assassinate the baron... That actually, there was a pit of orc slaves nearby, and I thought I could save them, and I went and did that. Yeah, it, you know what you know what it is. Is that right? I don't Maybe know. you know you know what uh, is immediately springing to mind is like the fellowship made their way to Mount Doom. They could have kept the Ring of Power, but instead they decided to cast it into the fire and destroy it. 
No, that's that was their mission. If they hadn't done that, they wouldn't have gotten the Persona Artha point. Right, exactly. But they do get the Deeds point for resisting, for giving up that power. Maybe just Boromir would get the Deeds point or or Frodo, right? I think you only get the Deeds point if you because it has choose to instead of casting the ring in you choose to actually keep the ring and become the next Sauron. No, it's the opposite. Because then you're changing the course of the game. Yeah, right? but but it has to come at great personal sacrifice to the players. Like like here oh. in the example, it says, in the end, you know, in that example, they not only overthrow the government, but they hand control back to the rightful government instead of taking power themselves. But... If the mission is to drop the ring into Mount Well, this Doom, is it. Is it, it would be like, for, if, if we take the idea of the mission off the table, it would be like, uh, instead of using the ring of power to defeat Sauron, we are instead giving up that power so that Sauron can be defeated, but we do not gain power if, from it. If your objective is to defeat Sauron. Yes. Like, it only works if you're not doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and so there's there's a whole other chunk of this just about, like, Artha. Uh, maybe I should say this a little bit about uh, NPC Artha, uh, just because I, I noted before, it's funny that you can give Artha to NPCs. Named villains and allies can start with one fate and one persona point each. Thereafter, they can earn Artha if the GM writes and plays beliefs for them. Uh, I advise against giving villains deeds points. Burning Wheel is meant to be a player-driven game. Deeds are rewarded for actual gameplay. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and then here, there's a little chart here about spending Artha. And this is pretty interesting to me. So, Tom, you know how inspiration, you spend it and you get advantage on a die roll, right? Yep. Well, in Ar with Artha, you can spend it in different ways. For example, if you spend one fate, you can temporarily negate a plus one, a plus one DC penalty, basically. A plus one obstacle penalty. I mean, that's... But that's similar. Like, this is just taking the more granular mechanic yes. and... Comparing it to like that's like saying I use my inspiration to give myself advantage on something I had disadvantage on. You can spend case, you can spend one persona uh, Artha to test to basically roll on their health skills so their character may recover from a mortal wound. That's you cool. can spend one deeds Artha to double your dice pool for a test. Similarly, you can spend one Deeds Artha to re-roll failed dice from one test. I'd definitely be more interested, certainly with the NPCs, in giving them something that changes their character in store instead of affecting a future dice roll. Like, if it's if I'm giving Artha points to an NPC, I want that NPC to like turn that Artha point into like a motorcycle. So next time we see that motor that NPC, he's like, hey, I got a motorcycle. <laughs> It doesn't look like That's it doesn't actually look like uh, Artha is ever converted into resource points. Unfortunately, all of the effects do seem sort of similar to the way inspiration, you know, using inspiration is meant to uh, alter the game where it's just sort of like, you know, you can add 
one die to a stat or skill for one test. And you can spend up to three points per roll. So, you know, I'm doing a, a test, which is just like a check, basically. I'm doing a test. Uh, I only have a dice pool of two. I only get to roll two, two D6s for this test. But I can spend three Persona to add three more dice to that pool, giving me, you know, more chances for successes. That. I mean, I think in the moment, like in the session, giving an NPC the ability to like improve their chances or something would be nice to like be like, hey, old Gary, the guard pulled it through because we gave him that extra point. But like, I don't know. I think in practice as a DM, it's just like NPCs. I'm not going to track that stuff for an NPC. Like I'm just I'm I'm going to. The thing that they give an NPC should be something that develops the NPC so that next time they see them, it's like, oh, hey, that thing we put into them has paid off. All my, honestly, like, here's a little behind the, the DM screen for you, but uh, my NPCs, I just have the most bare bones, like, stat blocks for them. You know, maybe some key equipment, uh, the the attributes, and, like, a few key skill values. But for the most part... Like, the NPCs are generally just there to move the plot forward, and unless a player is going to be, like, fighting with them, I don't feel the need to flesh them out quite that much. And like you said, I don't really... Something I definitely don't want to do is have to, tra you know, keep track of something on one of my NPCs. Because I got tons of NPCs. Maybe if they are, like, the DMPC, but, uh, but otherwise, nah, forget it. I'm not tracking stuff. Even the DMPC, like, I would track if he got... Maybe I track if he got a new gun or something, but I'm not going to track if he has a plus one to the next time. He yeah, rolls exactly. Because God knows when that's going to well, happen. Well, and and I'm also definitely not going to ever be in a situation where I'm running the game and like I consult the Arthur pool to see if I can boost yeah, an yeah. NPC's role. Like, no, man, like he makes it or he doesn't. It's it's definitely like, again, I, I see that as a thing where if the NPC is going to do something and maybe fails and then the players say, oh, no, let's give him an Arthur point and you see if that, like, saves him, then everybody can feel good that they can. Oh, absolutely. NPC yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's not something you have to track. That is something you hand out in the yeah. moment, which I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the difference in Arthur points regarding that is, like, you know, the ones you vote for at the end versus the ones you just hand out in the moment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that is the Artha mechanic. And uh, next time I'm going to just talk about uh, tests like skill checks, combat. They're all sort of born out of the same uh, system of dice rolling and just like how dice rolling works in, in uh, the Burning Wheel, how those checks function in-game. Uh, but yeah, for now, we've, we've created our character. Udo is fleshed out. And, uh, and we talked a bit about... Artha as well. The burning wheel continues, but soon, soon we'll switch to something new. And uh, yeah, it's been almost two hours. Who wants to record for uh, another hour? Not me. Uh, it's been uh, the 11th of October, 2022. This has been episode 125. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, message us, see when we post new episodes, check us out on Facebook. Feel free to message us and tell us you're listening because we got no idea. 
Um, and uh, if you want to see our show notes, see doodles that I done or pictures of uh, what I imagined basic layouts for Realms of CTRR Hall looking like in a very abstract sense, check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com for our supplemental materials, our show notes. Uh, anything else, McGill? Burn your character. Get that, Artha. Oh, man, that's... Yeah. And don't try to steal any, Artha, because you don't want to haunt it, Artha. How would that work? Take care, everybody. <laughs>